Welcome to a Lanyap episode of the Swamp Flex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. And we are recording in New Orleans, Louisiana, in Austin, Texas. And this is the last podcast recording of the year for this website. And we've been doing these Lanyap episodes since the summer. This feels like the the end of a beginning. I don't know. I've enjoyed the groove we've gotten in the, over the course of this year. I've been really enjoying it as well. And I'm glad that it got me back involved after... Um, I kind of had a pretty long break unintentionally there. You know from my doing of the Argento Codex in the past that I love mining my own data. And I did actually go through and take a look at the longest gap I ever had between individual articles or reviews that I wrote for the site, not counting these, not counting movie of the month, and the longest ever gap between publication was 196 days between Emma, which was published in early March, and Spree, which was published in mid-September, because I watched Girl on the Third Floor and it made me never want to write about movies again. (laughs) And then you reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to do this, and I was delighted, and I'm glad that you did, and I have really enjoyed this as well. Well, I mean... Totally excusable, given just the general vibe of this year between the pandemic, police brutality footage, which is another epidemic in itself, and, you know, all the other indignities and just, like, horrors we've suffered over the course of 2020. Yes. But you had, like, a lovely break from society uh, in the past month. Oh, I did. Are you feeling refreshed from that? You know, I feel saner than I have in a really long time. And, you know, quarantine has really messed with my perception of time. But... I feel more refreshed in my mind than I have in ages. Um, it was it was great. Thank you. Well, you've come back. I, mean, I know you were just talking about like taking a break from writing. You've come back strong with tons of reviews. You're doing kind of a blog takeover as we head into the new year, which I've been very much appreciating. Yeah, it was it was unintentional, but I did have a lot of time to make up for. So, yeah, I where I went for the first uh, week of my like nine day. Uh, sojourn from society more it was as like henry david thoreau as i wanted it to be i kind of worried that it might get a little (laughs) um, more secret window than uh it got but no it was nice (laughs) i I took a writing retreat to the hill country of texas to wimberley to a cabin or cottage is, is how they designated it but just a little you know one bedroom living room bathroom kitchen cottage in the hill country and did it without Wi-Fi, which was why, you know, you and I had to make arrangements for us to not do this for a week because I was going to be away. And when I got there, they did have a TV and a DVD player, which, you know, I was aware of because I had brought some DVDs with me that I've had for a while that I've been meaning to watch and could never force myself to watch at home. And uh, yeah, I watched a ton of things and have sent you a ton of copy, uh, so much so that I was worried I might overwhelm you a little bit. Oh, I love it. Well, what, what have you been watching? Anything particularly strong stand out? Uh, well, so the things that I watched that I guess copy has already been published on as of this date. Uh, I watched the FP, which some drama has arisen surrounding that. I don't know if we should get into it. Very minor drama. <laughs> Very minor drama. Very minor drama. Uh, the director and writer of the film discovered the review And he and one of the actors in it both wrote very polite (laughs) responses uh, that disagreed with my negative review. But when I first saw that he had responded 
I panicked a little bit because that dude could for sure kick my ass. But they actually were very nice and polite and kind. It was not aggressive, which is good because I I have no uh, talent for handling conflict. But the FP is a movie in which uh, two gangs do battle via uh, similar to but legally distinct from dancing directional pad game Dance Dance Revolution here imagined as Beat Beat Revelation. <laughs> if you'd like to know more of my thoughts on that uh, and why the director might be beefing, that uh, has already been published. I also watched I Declare War. Uh, both I Declare War and the FP were DVDs that I happened to get as part of the Alamo Draft House at Home uh, program uh, back in May. My erstwhile roommate and one of his current housemates both sent me one for my birthday back when we were just a couple of months into quarantine and kind of seemed like things might turn around sooner than they did. But the I Declare War was extremely impressive. It's uh, mostly preteens, almost entirely boys playing like a war game that's essentially capture the flag, but it is shot with the sort of pyrotechnics and special effects that would be used in an actual war film. So it's all taking place entirely within the kids' imaginations, but as depicted on the screen as if it were real, which is a really cool idea. It looks great. Big recommendation from me. And then there were a bunch of DVDs at the cottage. One of them was Jim Jarmusch's Broken Flowers, which I have never seen one of his films before. You know, I'm not really a huge fan, but I did see that one in the theater. It's fine. <laughs> That's the short end of it. It was fine. Um, it was very much a Bill Murray Lothario movie, which I don't know why that's a genre that we have. Back when that was still a novelty, though, right? Like that was like after Lost in Translation and Rushmore, which I feel like codified that. Yeah, thereabouts. But not to the point where it was a cliche yet, really. Yeah. But, you know, it's just a movie about a man who finds out that he might have a 19 year old son and then goes and visits the various women who he thinks might have written him the anonymous letter telling him so. So it is a great showcase to see, you know, uh, Jessica Lange and Sharon Stone and Frances Conroy and uh, Tilda Swinton, just in these various different roles, some of them playing against type, which is a lot of fun. I also, I saw Bill and Ted face the music. I love Bill and Ted. It was a relatively clean movie, so it was something that was like a PG-13 movie that I could watch, even in my very strict, you know, evangelical household, because it was mostly, it was, it's, it's, a, it's a harmless movie about two dumb slackers who aren't even potheads. Like, it never even gets to the point where they're explicitly stoners. And I loved it so much that whenever I went off to boarding school, at a very naive uh, 15, 16, my parents took me to the Sam Goody in that town to pick a movie poster or pick a poster for my dorm room. And I picked the classic Bill and Ted, you know, jamming on top of the phone booth movie poster image. It's near and dear to my heart. And I have to say, I was not a huge fan of this long awaited sequel. And I guess. It would have been foolish for me to have expected more from it. It was great to see Alex Winter. He looks great, and he seems to be having a whole lot more fun than Keanu, who honestly seems... It doesn't seem like 
Ted is confused. It seems like Keanu is confused, <laughs> even though you know he's still very sharp. Like he's still making great movies, but for whatever reason, there's just something about it that doesn't work. Um, but the two actresses playing there, or the two actors rather, portraying their daughters are often the best thing in the film performance-wise, but the worst thing dialogue-wise. Mm. So it just kind of comes out to be an overstuffed mess and not overstuffed in a way that you're just like, yeah, it's a hot dog stuffed with jack cheese on a pizza, junk food, cheesy blaster, pop culture movie. It's just kind of like, oh, this is a, you broke the meringue. It's kind of like a half-hearted victory lap. I'm also like a huge fan of Bogus Journey, too, which I, I don't know if I want to see that reattempted <laughs> at this late stage. Yeah, I also love Bogus Journey. Uh, I would, cons- I don't know if you would consider yourself a Bogus Journey apologist. There, there are certainly dozens of us. What's the apology necessary? I, I think it's an improvement on the first movie. <laughs> wow. Okay, I wouldn't say an which I like them both a lot. But... I mean, I don't mean to be an asshole about that. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It's great. Um, I just don't believe it's very well beloved in the mainstream the way that you and I do. Oh, I also sent you a review of. The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, Her Lover, which you have seen. Uh, one of my all-time favorite films. Like That one was one of the like early watches in high school that like remapped my brain. I was like, art can do this? So yeah, I, I can't be objective about that movie. I know it doesn't seem like something that you would think is up my alley because of what a like stentorian I am about like narrative. Uh, but I loved it. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was gorgeous. Yes. I have seen Drowning by Numbers before, which is a different Peter Greenaway film. Both that one and this DVD that I was loaned by a friend of The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, neither of them are subtitled, which it would be impossible to subtitle this movie properly, I think, as uh, Michael Gambon like, just delivers a continuous spiel. Just like his mouth never, ever, ever stops moving through the whole movie. So (laughs) it would have to like subtitle that. And I can see how that would be a nightmare. I don't know if that's why it wasn't subtitled. Murder by Numbers also had the same problem. And even though I loved it, I had a much harder time telling what was going on in that one. But it is like the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover in its weird exploration of space and framing. I think that you would really enjoy it. Maybe that's a potential movie of the month for next year. I would love that. Just the lushness of that movie is something like I want to drown in. The colors, the fabrics, the texture is just like so beautiful, even though the actual content is so ugly and cruel. Yeah, it really speaks to me. Uh, I think that catches you up on everything that I've seen, or at least everything important. But enough about what I've been doing. <laughs> what have you been watching? Honestly, the most like rewarding thing I've done this month was, based on our movie of the month, um, we watched Ken Russell's Salome's Last Dance, which has a lot of uh, sort of meta, direct-to-the-camera appreciation of Oscar Wilde as like a public figure and like an artist. And I went back and watched three films where Ken Russell paid homage to other sort of um, provocateurs of, of the history past. And I talked last time we, you and I recorded, I talked about Gothic was one of them where he like just fawned over Lord Byron's like villainy <laughs> in a really fun way. Um, and I watched two more after that. I watched one called um, Lissomania, which is about Franz Liszt's. 
who was this pretty boy composer. Like he was basically one of the first rock stars and he would like travel around while teen girls like fawned over him as if he was like a teen beat cover boy. Yes. And what he does with that as he turns least into this like mid seventies glam rock star, it stars Roger Daltrey, like right after he did Tommy with Ken Russell. Oh really? But it's way weirder than Tommy. Like it's basically Russell's like, Either his Rocky Horror or his, like, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Like, it's, it's just complete, utter, dialed to 11 nonsense from front to end. And there's just these giant, like, phalluses that decorate the sets. Some, like, forced femme uh, kink play, like, mid-film. I don't even know what that is. Like, forced feminization, like, uh, kink role play <laughs> in the middle of the movie. Where, like, this lady makes him dress up like a woman, and then they kind of whip him and make him, like, ride around on this, like, giant phallic pony horse. I don't know. It's fucking ridiculous. When you said for... Okay, that is what I imagined based on the words that were used, but thank you for confirming that for me. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I'm more familiar with that term than I should uh, let, <laughs> let out on a public feed, but whatever. It's the holiday season. And then the movie just kind of ends with, like... His best friend in the film is Richard Wagner, which a lot of this is biographically, historically correct. Um, it's just like blown up to this like comic book level absurdity where it's like barely recognizable as truth anymore. So by the end of the movie, he is going to war with his friend slash rival, Richard Wagner, um, who turns into this like giant Frankenstein Nazi robot that's like trying to destroy the world. I don't know. It's just fucking ridiculous. And honestly, I was a little exhausted by it. <laughs> and like, this is the exact kind of movie that like 10 years ago would have like really won me over. But just the constant shoveling of cinematic candy down my throat got to be a bit much this time. It's like a little bit of a headache. But Lissomania, if you're ever looking for like a Rocky Horror, or, like a uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls type, like excessive watch, that's definitely in the same canon. I was even more won over, though, by The Music Lovers from 1971. And this is his love letter to Tchaikovsky, uh, the Russian composer. And in this movie, Tchaikovsky is torn into three directions by three different women. His sister, who is like almost incestuously obsessed with him and like wants to keep him to herself. Um, his real life benefactor, his like patron, who like paid for him to compose things but didn't want to see him in person, is also like controlling his life. And then also he falls in love with this woman who writes him a letter about how beautiful his music is. And she turns out to be a nymphomaniac, which he doesn't realize until after he marries her. And it's only a problem because he is gay and can't consummate the marriage. He really wants to, to like appear normal and like fit in with like other composers and like academics in his circle, but can't have sex with this woman. It terrifies him. And because this is a Ken Russell movie, that conflict is played to this like absurd over the top horror film. Like, okay, there's this one scene where they're on a train and his solution is I'm going to get so drunk that I can have sex with my wife and thus like make this marriage like legit. And that scene is shot with more terror and like sweaty (laughs) paranoia and just like drunken chaos where they're like falling all over the place and like trying to take their clothes off and just like, horrified by each other's naked bodies <laughs> and i was just like wow this is cinema um it's <laughs> just like really won over by this film and then at the end it all crescendos the way that like a tchaikovsky composition does where like 
heads are exploding and fireworks are going off and these like colorful ribbons are like flying in all directions and it just abandons reality entirely to sort of just match the um, over-the-top excess of his music. And honestly, like one of the best movies I've seen all year, The Music Lovers, and it got terrible reviews when it came out. People were like, this is not historically accurate. Uh, his, his marriage wasn't actually like this. I don't know why these decisions were made. But I think I think time has been kind to it. It's like a singular work of art and very Ken Russell in that way. It sounds very much like our eternal struggle between my desire for historical accuracy and your not giving a, a shit about that as long as it's great cinema. <laughs> so, but it does sound like something that I would have a lot to say about. I won't commit to enjoying it <laughs> up front, but it seems like something that I would get something out of. I think... I'm drawn to Ken Russell because he goes over the top and is like, I call him a, a, a madman. He's just an absolute madman. And I love that about him. I think the music lovers offers something as like a bridge where like, if that's too much for you, like <laughs> if like Gothic and crimes of passion and Tommy are like too obnoxious to be enjoyed, this movie chooses its moments. It's the serial mom. Yes, yes, yes. It, it's like him like making accommodations where he's like kind of holding back a little bit and then going big when it's appropriate. Okay. Like I said, it's his serial mom. Like John Waters is like palatable to the mainstream, but still undeniably his work sort of thing. That's exactly accurate. As a lifelong Stephen King fan, making sure that I was faithful to his book it was a huge priority for me. But given that Stanley Kubrick's cinematic legacy is one of the reasons I wanted to make films to begin with, the conflict that exists between those two visions exists very much in me. And I felt like if I could somehow bridge that gulf in a way that would satisfy myself, hopefully it would satisfy both of those camps. So the movie that we are talking about this week is the 2019 Mike Flanagan film Dr. Sleep, which serves as both a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's classic 1980 The Shining and an adaptation of the original Shining's sequel novel, Dr. Sleep, published about five years prior. It again follows Danny Torrance, now an adult man struggling with the same demons that affected his father, namely alcoholism, as he adapts to life with The Shining, but poorly. Uh, meanwhile, elsewhere, a little girl who has a Shining that's even more powerful than his own is born and eventually grows into a preteen, causing her to attract the attention of a group of quasi-immortal energy vampires that feed upon steam or the shining which is purified by fear and pain and danny must once again embrace his powers and struggle with his impulses to drink and confront the ghost of his father metaphorically mostly as he tries to save abra from the villains of the true knot what did you think brandon you know, we're recording this two days before Christmas. I wish I could give the gift of loving this movie to you. <sighs> it was fine. 
I, I feel bad. Like, honestly, I know this is like one of your favorite movies from the past like decade. Literally, I know that <laughs> because I've seen you list those out and this was on the list and I struggled to be interested in it. Mostly what it did for me is it made me want to rewatch The Shining, which I did the day after. And I, I still very much enjoy that film a lot. Um, and I, I could talk about what I think they do differently and like the ways that this felt flat for me. But I want to state up front, I'm not super negative on it. I'm going to sound like I'm complaining the entire time we talk. I thought it was mostly fine. It's okay. Uh, I, I liked it okay. You know, sometimes there are movies that you and I both enjoy, but then we still sometimes find ourselves talking mostly about the flaws of, just because sometimes that's the nature of the discourse. But yeah, for flaws that you have to talk about, I'll just talk about something that I loved. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, please proceed. <laughs> okay, so you were just talking about with the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, right? That is a very, like, sensually luxuriant film. And, like, not really about narrative so much. It's about, like, really fucked up relationships, dynamics, but not really about story. And I- I'm mentioning that because I feel like that's a very clear distinction between The Shining and Dr. Sleep. Like, The Shining, not that much happens in it, really. It, like, luxuriates in this, like, fucked up mood and just this, like, anxiety over this man who is an abusive alcoholic who despises his family. And you can feel that, like, contention the entire time. And you're just waiting for him to snap. And then he finally does. And it's so over the top. Those performances are so bizarre and just, like, stick with you in these, like, weird ways. Mm. Dr. Sleep, by contrast, is so plotty and so explaining. (laughs) And it just... It feels like TV. It doesn't feel like a movie. It like the way the story goes, it's so wrapped up in this like project of linking the Kubrick film's iconography with the plot events of the Stephen King sequel and like marrying those two art forms. And I, I would say it does a good job of that, having not read the novel myself. I, I think it does a good job of like keeping faithful to Stephen King's vision for the project while still recognizing that Kubrick's visual accomplishments have like overpowered whatever Stephen King wanted from that adaptation that he did not get. It does all that really well, but like, I wish it was less interested in that than it was in like actually establishing a mood. And like the television story writing thing to me is about how it alternates between all these different characters, making sure we get all their different beats in without actually spending any time in any one moment and drawing out the dread of it like evoking like a weird mood or a weird performance. I think the one exception is Rose the hat. I think she has original shining energy uh, in this film and everything else feels like very Mike Flanagan, you know, technically accomplished, but not very interesting to me. So you're right. It doesn't have the same cinematic quality. Kubrick's eye is different from Flanagan's eye and, I'm not going to, I wouldn't say that there's really even necessarily a comparison between the two. When we talked about Oculus, I talked about how Mike Flanagan is my favorite horror director working today. And when we talked about Oculus, I did talk about how Oculus itself seemed to be doing some first attempts at some things that were more successful whenever he got around to making the House on Haunted Hill TV series and how that did function better as a TV series than Oculus did as a film. But you also, I think we've said, you haven't seen Gerald's Game. And there's something special about him working 
with Stephen King content when you talk about Gerald's Game and when you talk about Dr. Sleep. He's doing something with them where there is, to me, some sort of lightning in a bottle that's captured with you know King's stories and his direction. You know, whenever you did your reviews of the Mission Impossible movies a few years back, you wrote about how it was a strange film series because it did not have a single unique vision. It was just the same characters with wildly different directors who all brought their own visions to the project. And I think that Stephen King material is very much like that because we've talked about before just like putting Misery and Christine in the same double feature and how those two directors who created those two works made two very different things. See, I think that's a great thing to be able to have like different visions of the material. And I was actually thinking a lot watching Dr. Sleep of like the Kevin Feige method of like smoothing that out and making everything of a piece and like how uninteresting that is to me. And this is like very much like the MCU of The Shining, like down to the superhero powers. Wow. Okay. Is that harsh? I, I don't mean it to sound as harsh as, as I mean it to. And I, I feel like people who love this movie love the fact that it is able to smooth out the um, disparate visions of the work between like what Stephen King wanted and what Stanley Kubrick wanted. Yeah. And what we were talking about, what you were talking about when you were talking about like the director's eye, though, I think that there is a particular vision that is being presented here because this is much more of a, a moving pieces narrative as opposed to The Shining where everything is kind of, it's all in one place essentially other than just the opening moments. And this is kind of like a, an America-wide story almost because you've got New Hampshire and you've got Colorado and there's traveling. And I think that like the austerity of like, intra-city travel or inter-city travel from you know population center to population center i see that represented here because a lot of the film is about the quiet still places where horrible things can hide and horrible things can happen rv parks where children go missing or kids getting picked up by the side of the road by adults who intend them harm out among the cornfields right I will admit there's an awful lot of driving in this movie, but to me it contributes to the mood and doesn't detract from it that, you know, sometimes it is just a long car ride where you face your innermost demons, right? Like sometimes that's where that happens. Road trips are very American and like unavoidable way. Just the, the fact that you can drive that long and still be in the same country. Yeah. It's kind of a novelty. There's only a few countries where that's true. And none of this takes place in like a major population center. The largest community that we see is a place that has a pretty sad and pathetic miniaturization of its town square in the middle of the park in the town square. And like the miniaturization is of a bunch of single level storefronts <laughs> and it's just a sad it, little strip mall the sad little strip mall it has the clock tower which is is neat but it's like the rest of it is just you know the soap store and that lines up with the soap store in the background it's just very basic and then you know we never really get a sense of location of where abra is which i think is part of the like actually is intentional like we we might get a chiron saying it's in you know whatever city or whatever town but her 
lack of precision about her location is part of the narrative when the true knot goes looking for her. Yeah, you get like Rose flying over just sort of like this nondescript suburbia to like confront this girl in her mind while she's sleeping. Yeah. Even the like grocery store that Rose is in when she first makes or second time makes psychic contact with Abra could be anywhere. And there are so many films that are like about the horrors of the city or the horrors of the rural parts of America, but so little of it is about like the horror of the highway and everything that happens here happens just off the road. And that sort of anonymity of all of the road looking the same, it's just always fields gives it kind of universality because we've all driven through that for so long before that you kind of start to think that maybe you'll never see anything else. You know what does a good job, like a movie that does a good job of like marrying the two things we're talking about, where like that is still represented, but the movie like kind of dwells on like the eerie atmosphere of that, um, is Near Dark. Have you ever seen that? The Catherine mm, Bigelow movie? Catherine Bigelow. No, I haven't, but it's on the list. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it's kind of the same thing. Like the knot is the same kind of like vampiric traveling carny caravan that uh, Catherine Bigelow you know, represents in that film where it's like this kind of odd family that's just sort of existed for centuries. It feels like, and they prey on children and like weak people at the outskirts of town, like kind of hitchhiker types, but that's a much eerier film that sort of like luxuriates in like the just sort of openness and vulnerability of that kind of life. I can see that. I did really like the knot as a concept. I think that is the core of what makes this movie interesting as its own distinct work especially Rebecca Ferguson's performance as Rose the Hat, uh, who feels like a French Quarter weirdo that you would like meet in a bar and sort of like instantly regret talking to. Like you would like strike up a conversation and be like, oh no, I need to back out of this. Uh, I like her energy in this yeah, a lot. Uh, that is a really, it's, it's a great performance for Rebecca Ferguson. She brings so much menace, but also you kind of want to be her. Her life of like traveling in a caravan and like meditating on an oriental rug on top of her RV surrounded by like cheese and wine. <laughs> it's it's such a picture of like an ideal life, just this like sort of bohemian vagabond, which I guess is what like trust fundafarians are, but it doesn't seem as terrible when she's doing it, even though she's literally sucking the life out of people to the movie's credit. It knows how special she is. Like it doesn't start with the shining recreations. That's something you get like way late in the runtime. It starts with her giving her jughead speech to a child that she's about to eat where she's like, you see this hat. That's weird, right? No one ever sees me without this hat. That's weird. Like there's this whole speech where she like introduces herself and her whole deal. And like, that's your intro to this world. And I found that like, a good like hat tip to like we know how special this character is and we're going to let her like chew the scenery as much as we can. Oh, and that opening scene is so good. The way that It's very creepy. The other members just like suddenly appear with like a crack of a of a footstep in the woods behind her. And I, I do appreciate that the movie goes hard in that violence. Like they are preying on children 
and it doesn't shy away from how horrific that is, uh, particularly in the scene where they all communally smoke Jacob Tremblay like a bong. Yeah. <laughs> like, hang out and, like, suck his uh, his steam, his essence out of him. Pretty fucking gnarly. Like, it's really hard to watch. Yeah, it's it's harrowing. Yeah. So, to me, there's something about the fact that this being a Shining sequel, I don't actually think about that element of it. It spends so much time away from the Overlook Hotel, where the fact that he is the son of Jack Torrance is important to like his life, but not in the way that you would expect when you, when you hear the phrase Shining sequel, right? The connection to it is largely about his struggle with his addiction, which is a much bigger part of the Shining novel than the Shining film. That's where I have to call bullshit. I don't understand that narrative at all. Watching The Shining again specifically after watching this film, I've been hearing that for so long. Like, oh yeah, the movie doesn't really grapple with the alcoholism the way the book does. And I just, I think that is so untrue. Like, that whole movie is about this man who has open contempt for his wife and child and has just, within the past five months, broken his son's arm or like ripped his shoulder out of socket because he was too drunk and couldn't like gauge his like physical strength and then makes his family up in their life to go to this hotel where he does not do the basic work he's supposed to do there. He instead like drinks ghost booze um, and like sinks further into his alcoholism until he violently explodes and like literally hunts them down with an ax. Like that movie is so specifically about that type of alcoholic abuse that like, I don't think it gets the credit for actually dealing with the theme, All right. the way that people talk about it. Yeah. I'll agree with you that it's grappling with alcoholism is understated in comparison to the the novel. And that's probably what people are, people have heard and people who haven't read it just regurgitate to the point where it sounds like people are saying it's not about alcoholism at all when it, it clearly is. But I had just finished reading, um, rereading The Shining whenever I saw Dr. Sleep. And maybe it's just that it touched me in a particular way. But there is something that's an element of self-awareness about alcoholism in The Shining that's in the novel, that's less present in the film. The film is a more external observer, because that's just the nature of the medium that it's in. The novel is all interior monologuing, right? And not just from Jack, but from Danny too, which is part of what gives it its charm, because there are a lot of times where Danny in the novel mishears things. Like, you know, he, he spells out in his sections the presidential suite, S-W-E-E-T, because he's a child and doesn't like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a charm to it in the novel that I really enjoy. But there's a complexity to it in the novel that's not as present in the film, in the sense that, like, you know, Jack Torrance in the novel mentions that there are colleagues of his who are functioning alcoholics and don't struggle with it the way that he does. It's like a more... Whereas Dr. Sleep, both the novel and the film are both just like alcoholism bad. But I feel like it works. There, you know, there's something about the scene after Abra has been kidnapped by Crow Daddy in Dr. Sleep. And Dan takes the bottle of booze from the house and he goes home and he struggles not to take that drink. In my mind, it, I remembered it going on much longer than it does in the film. Like sitting in that theater, it felt like that scene went on for like minutes 
because of like just the I've rarely seen addiction portrayed so well to my eye at least like the way that I have seen it not to get too personal but like the struggles that I have had with the own things the things that I have had certain dependencies on in my life right that struggle it was so palpable and I loved that it spoke to me and and that's one of the things that I loved about this movie it is like a lot more literally about alcoholism and like directly Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's a bad thing I don't I don't mean to say that like in a negative way Mm -hmm. I'm just saying like I think The Shining is also about alcoholism (laughs) and like yeah I, I think this type of storytelling that this movie's doing is like very well suited to like long form storytelling. It makes perfect sense to me that this was like based off a novel where like, if you watch the shining without any knowledge of who Stephen King was, or the fact that there was any source material at all, you might not even know that there was a novel behind it. And I don't know how I've never read Dr. Sleep, or at least if I did, I don't remember it, but it's a big novel. The shining is not that long. It's not, you know, a doorstopper the way that The Stand or It is. The Shining is a, a shorter novel and also lends itself better to film than something as long as Dr. Sleep is. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say I disagree with you there. There's no like prescriptive answer to this, other than I think this movie more wants to be a miniseries or like a television show. Like this wants to be the haunting of Hill House, but the shining edition. I could feel the like episode breaks and like the grand finale of the season. Once you get to the overlook, like I can feel where it's like segmented in that way. And from what I hear, the the longer version of the movie actually does have chapter breaks. Yes. That, I've also heard that. I was going to see. And the fact that he wanted a longer version, like the two and a half hours wasn't enough. And then it had to be broken into chapters. Like that makes so much sense to me. Cause like watching it, I was just like, Oh, this is a season of prestige television, which not necessarily better or worse than movies in any way, but it just feels like it's like fitting his vision into a medium where it doesn't really belong. But I'm trying, I'm trying to get that out of the way just so I can say nice things where it's like, this is really well made. (laughs) It's a well made season of prestige TV and the superhero stuff is not like big CGI fest, like blowouts of like people throwing each other around with like mind powers it's a little more cerebral than that. Like I really liked the scene particularly where um, they set a trap for Rose the hat where she goes into the girl's bedroom and then gets her like wrist slammed in like her mental files. Yeah. yeah I think that's like a really interesting twist on like the superpower battle. Um, that sort of like psychedelic in the mind sort of surrealism. It, it does interesting things with the genre. I can see the argument that you're making and I don't have a logical rebuttal when you say that this has like superhero elements, because I guess that's true, but I don't think of it that way. My favorite Stephen King novel is The Dead Zone. And they did previously, back around the turn of the century, make a Dead Zone television show for USA Network with Anthony Michael Hall as Johnny Smith, the man who wakes from a coma and has sort of a touch telepathy premonition powers and i remember reading that novel and feeling like it really lent itself like of all of stephen king's work it is the thing that lends itself most to episodic storytelling where johnny could have all of these adventures and eventually lead up to the conclusion of the novel in which he must prevent the 
political rise of a right-wing politician who bring the world to an end, essentially. And I guess you could call that a superhero story, but I never think about it that way. And I don't think about this as being like a superhero story either. I think of it as a story about a man who just happens to there's something about psychic powers that just i mean that that is something that superhero is part of superhero media but i guess i don't know i never conceptualized it that way it's the way that he teams up with the teen girl or the preteen girl and like the way that they use their like shine to defeat this big bad that is like staging a final showdown at a specific location like that stuff just feels very indebted to modern superhero media to me. And specifically that goal of like smoothing out the disparate visions of those two works as well feels very like modern superhero media. But I, I guess like for me, what I liked is that there wasn't you would never have like a, a Marvel movie in which one of the climactic battles was just luring people into the woods to shoot them. Right? Like, it's so, it's very grounded. You also wouldn't have that Jacob Tremblay uh, smoking his dead body scene either. Like, that goes very hard in a way that most, like, mainstream action films do not these days. The true not are legitimately horrifying. It's not just that they take children, although that's part of it, but, like, their powers. I find them very creepy, especially Crow Daddy and, and Rose, mostly because they're the ones that we get the most FaceTime with. I remember being completely taken aback by the face of the the young girl that they induct into the knot at the beginning of the film when they're like recruiting their monster squad. I found her arc interesting. She's introduced basically protecting like children from exploitation, like hard candy style. Yeah, she's blowing a hard candy. And then immediately she's flipped to where she does the same thing she was preventing like two scenes ago. And I assume the longer version of the film that has like more character beats is like the kind of thing where they like insert a scene where she like struggles with that difference. It does illustrate like the lore of that lifestyle where it's like, well, that must be a very powerful drug that like child smoke for someone to turn around that quickly and <laughs> abandon their morals instantly. Um, but yeah, I, f- I found her to be an interesting character in that way. And, and the knot in general, I think, is like a more the most distinct aspect of this movie. Especially compared to like the last 30 minutes where they start revisiting literal imagery from the first Shining. Okay, we have to talk about this. I feel like you spend enough time with adult Dan and Abra and the Knot. Obviously, you'll never entirely forget that this is a sequel to The Shining. But by the time he talks about going to the Overlook and you hear those three ominous chords from the soundtrack, the the music from The Shining. The Wendy Carlos uh, score. Yeah, the... By the time you hear that, you're like, oh, right. I felt like I lived in Dan's world and Abra's world and Rose's world for so long that I forgot that that was where we were going. That it was like, oh, right, yeah, now I'm excited again and some more. And I feel like the length of the film contributes to that. Um, I loved going on that journey. I love that it's, you know, it took a while to get there. And one thing that I did love about it is that it's it's very clearly faithfully recreating things. Not that that's necessarily a good or bad thing, but you have to imagine that like the 
recreation of the actual Overlook has to be identical to the original, but it doesn't look the same. And I love that because it's Danny grown up now. Like that Kubrick fisheye lens is like the eye of the child as he watches these things happen. And now Danny as an adult, it all does seem kind of smaller. Like it feels like, you know, when he gets there and they kind of look around, it's like in your mind, it's bigger because it was bigger on the screen the last time you saw it. I was impressed by the recreation of the space. I was less sold on the recreation of the performances that Shelley Duvall stand in in particular is like the one link to the overlook that we get before that showdown. Like she's sort of interspersed as Danny's memories throughout the film. And it's just slightly off in this like uncanny Valley way where it's not, the actor is not trying to look like her, but the vocal performance is very much an impersonation. And Shelley Duvall is so singular in general, but especially in that role, like you cannot, replace that the energy is so weird and so affecting and like heartbreaking in that like three women kind of way where it's like i i, I would protect you with my entire life and save you from i would jump in front of that axe for you you poor vulnerable woman um i don't feel that watching the sort of like placeholder version of her in this film and like drawing comparisons between what's accomplished here and what's accomplished in the kubrick movie is not to this movie's benefit especially since like the the only person who can like claim to have that weirdo energy is Rebecca Ferguson. Like Danny Torrance and his new protege are putting forward very like straightforward sort of like normal mainstream acting performances. Not to denigrate what they're doing at all, but it's not like the over the top like what even is this energy that Jackson and Duvall have in the original. So, okay, here's what I find interesting about that just as like a quick aside, is that Abra is Danny in a healthy environment. Yeah. Loving parents. Loving parents. It's even specifically at one point, she asks her dad how his book is going. (laughs) So it's down to like having an author father. You know, so many of us who are now adults and we're like children of abuse, you struggle with it, but maybe you can move on or maybe it's you have ways of compartmentalizing and boxing those traumas the way that the ghost of dick halloran teaches young danny to box away the ghosts that have followed him home from the overlook and danny can't get past it because unlike most of us the demons that haunted his father weren't just metaphorical they were literal they were literal ghosts and demons that destroyed his family and he's a broken man because of it who is able to find strength in another way and abra is who danny always could have been if it hadn't been for jack's weakness for the drink and what could be characterized as a very straightforward performance might just be a well-adjusted child. Oh, for sure. People, people who are well-adjusted just aren't as, as dramatic as those of us who are uh, less so. Like, we're watching Danny heal, too. Like, we watch, like, I want to say years of him, like, going through AA. Yeah. And, like, you know, really just, like, building himself back up to, like, a normal, like, steady persona. Which, honestly, I, I hate to keep bringing it back to this. I'm sorry. But, like, that is, like, a superhero storytelling thing as well. Like superhero movies in general, the hero is never that interesting. 
because they have to be good. They have to be the like solid rock at the center. And it's more the eccentric fuck ups and villains around them that like give the movie flavor. And yeah, I feel like the level of crisis that the three main actors of the shining are going through at all times is just so different from this movie, which is very leveled out and normalized. But like we were saying earlier, like the way that they recreate the space of the shining and the camera movements and things like that is just impeccable. And something that we discussed when we talked about Oculus as well, like Mike Flanagan's love of this material and of Kubrick's like visual eye is consistent throughout his work, especially the way he like maps out the geography of a building and like the space you're going to occupy with the like swooping dolly movements, like throughout the space, just like really impeccably executed in a way that I found like impressive. And I, I just wish that I could feel that same adoration for like the characters or the atmosphere of it. That's what's missing for me. I, I don't know. I can't argue that point. Just to say that, like, you know, the characters meant more to me than they did to you. Yeah. I I think this movie is beautiful. I mean, I would never say it's better than The Shining. Like, I'm not, you know, that would be an absurd statement to make. They're very different. Yeah. It's the most jarring difference between a film and its sequel since, like, the Judy Garland Wizard of Oz and the Feruza Balk Return to Oz. (laughs) That's a good comparison. Like they're they're just they're technically they're technically set in the same universe, but they are very different. And I don't hate the reimagining of the lore of The Shining into something that's not exactly like Kubrick's vision of The Shining. That doesn't bother me as much as it seems to bother you. I will say the true not stuff is what works for me in this film because it is the stuff that feels brand new and just like besides maybe near dark not something i'm used to seeing on the screen like that stuff is very singular and easy to latch on to it's where it invites comparisons to the preceding work that i uh i get stuck and i ended up watching the original the next night um which did not help things like i probably should have held off till next year but i got very excited on the idea of like watching shelly duvall again Especially after watching Three Women this year, like my love for her has only been reinvigorated. You know, when I saw Doctor Sleep last year, it reinvigorated an interest for me in The Shining as well. Where for the next week, the only thing I watched on YouTube and watched some at least every day were like many of the various Kubrick conspiracy theory videos, but also like many. Oh my god, <laughs> I'm not going to go down that road. But I, I, you know, Kubrick did not film the moon landing. I don't know if there's anyone listening to this who needs someone to remind you that. But Kubrick did not fake the moon landing, and there's not uh, secrets hidden in The Shining about that. But there is a huge amount of scholarship, uh, lay <laughs> scholarship about the hidden messages in The Shining, which every time, you know, I saw this last year in the theaters. I was probably one of the 13 people who did. And it did invigorate in me a love for the shining lore again, especially coming so closely on the heels of my rereading of the novel. And again, I, you know, I rewatched it for this and I got again into the lore. I watched that room 237 documentary a few years ago and I really liked it, even though like those conspiracy theories are complete bullshit, (laughs) but like it was a fascinating documentary because it allows people to just sort of like explain themselves without any judgment. Mm-hmm. what do you see in this and what evidence do you have? And they just sort of like ramble in these like 
extrapolations that just go on and on. And watching the Kubrick film, like I can see where that's coming from because it is so odd and it makes so many choices visually that are just there to disorient you. And there's no plot. Like there's a very bare bones story to it where your mind fills in the gaps. Like the dog blowjob fairy man. Like what the fuck is that? And you have to like think about what that means and where it comes from and like what that represents. And there's just so much room for that where when I'm calling Dr. Sleep more like television writing or like long form fiction writing, I don't know. There's like less room for that. It is very like on the level, like the movie doesn't leave a lot of room for you to extrapolate in the same way. Huh? That uh, dog man is in the novel. Right. But I like that it's not explained in the movie. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. You're, no, I agree. I it, it works better in isolation as a what the fuck is that question right. as opposed to – not that its explanation in the novel is bad. It's just that the novel has a lot more room to be like, this is the horrible history of this place. Here are all the horrible things that have happened here and why it is a, a hell mouth. So yeah, I kind of wish this was like a Hill House length work. But I honestly don't know if I would have watched it if it were. So it's probably good for me as an audience that he condensed this miniseries into a two and a half hour single dose film. Because I ne- probably never would have watched it otherwise. And it's really well made. I still am not on the Mike Flanagan hype train the way that I should be considering my horror nerddom. And like how beloved he is among my friends who love the same kind of material as I do. But I still am impressed by the craft of it. He seems like a genuine nerd for both like Kubrick's camera trickery and also the Stephen King lore. Um, and I like that someone gave him a lot of money to play around with both of those things um, and sort of like live his little nerd heart out on the screen. I appreciate that. Yeah, a shame that nobody went to see this. It certainly does not deserve the like monetary failure that it ended up being. I'm honestly surprised. I think with like the right marketing and maybe less like on-screen orgasmic child murder like it could have been a mainstream hit but i'm glad it has those like thornier elements as well i wouldn't take that away from it yeah i'd say the failure is largely due to marketing and the fact that like there has been a general cultural shift away from preservation of the media of the past just in the sense that like this isn't going to be like kids these days this isn't that kind of rant But the rise of the ability of streaming media means that people of the next generation have not been forced to just like watch TV and what's in syndication and become familiar with material from before they were born the way that our generation was. You know, like my favorite movies when I was a kid were things that all had come out like before or around the time I was born Princess Bride, Return to Oz, Never Ending Story. Those were all still things that were part of the culture that was available as I was growing up. And streaming also has meant kind of the end of the living room family television. Like in the way that, you know, if I were to spend the weekend at my grandmother's and she got Nick at night, she would be excited to share I Love Lucy or the Dick Van Dyke show with me. That doesn't exist in the same way either, because now everyone's kind of separated into their own streaming whatever find whatever i want to watch kind of thing and so the shining as a movie that is 40 years old having a sequel to that does not appeal in the same way 
that it might have 20 years ago, not just because it was closer in proximity to the material that it's a sequel to, but also just because The Shining continued to be a part of the conversation for a long time, but really isn't as much in the mainstream anymore. It's been relegated to our little weird horror circles of the internet. And what's really funny about that is like the first time I ever saw The Shining was we were at a family Christmas Eve party that I went to every year. And on the way home, I don't know what inspired this, but my parents were like, we're going to watch The Shining tonight. They're not horror nerd people. Like, I don't know what inspired this decision, but they went to Blockbuster on a route home, got the movie, and we all sat down as a family and watched the VHS copy on like the big TV in the living room. And as a result, I've always associated The Shining with Christmas. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the timing of this episode. I, I don't know if it's just like the wintry uh, backdrop of it, or I, I have no idea what inspired that. But yeah, like I used to have like more communal monoculture as a kid growing up, where like, especially when I didn't have cable, like there were only like a few channels. Right. We we all watched the same stuff at the same time. That is kind of missing now. Well, I love Doctor Sleep. I can't make you love it. If you don't, I can't make your heart feel something that it won't. I, I guess I'll rest my case, listener. It's up to you. Did this sound like something you'd want to watch? Did my long rambling descriptions about our austere pastoral American farm country drives make this appeal to you? <laughs> if not, I, I, I get that. But please, please watch it. I, I love it. Big recommend from me. Well, next week we'll be coming back to look back at our favorite films of 2020 in particular. And I I assume for most of January, that's what the podcast episodes will be about. That's what most of the articles on the website will be about. There were great movies that came out this year. If you hear that like nothing came out um, because a lot of the bigger IP was canceled, that's just not true. I've actually had a hard time whittling it down to a top 20. And I think there's plenty of stuff to catch up on. So I'm very... Excited for the opportunity to like boost my favorite movies of the year in the next few weeks. And um, I'll link in the show notes a few of the reviews that Boomer mentioned at the top of the episode because he's been flooding the website and it's been absolutely lovely. I had a lot of time to make up for. I looked at the data. I did the data mining that we talked about. And <laughs> if you look at just reviews, I have on average contributed a review every 14 days since I started writing for Swamp Flicks. But there are huge gaps, and then there's like a huge treasure trove that I just dump in your lap. And, you know, it's like, here's 10 of them, and you have to like space them out so it isn't just me taking over. But if you include the podcasts, the movies of the month, it's I've contributed something every 7.33 days. So I want to thank you again for inviting me on this so far over five-year journey and for asking me to contribute to the podcast in my own way. And even though you couldn't give me the gift of enjoying this movie, and I'll never forgive you for that, you have given (laughs) me the gift of uh, this platform. And I'm grateful to that. Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas. Or Happy Honda Days, or Toyota-thon, whatever you and your family choose to celebrate.